Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit. In this episode, I am really excited to be joined by my friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. It's really hard to introduce Rangan in a way that does him justice because he's somebody I really admire. He is not only a friend, but he lives uh, a life filled with integrity, compassion and curiosity. He's really well known here in the UK for his TV shows. He did the BBC show Doctor in the House. He is resident doctor for BBC Breakfast. He's a BBC Radio 2 presenter. I know him best for his work in medicine. He's a GP, but he also has written best-selling books. He's written Four Pillar Plan, The Stress Solution, which is a book I absolutely love. Feel Better in Five, Feel Great, Lose Weight, and his most recent book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And I am absolutely thrilled to have him with me today. And I'm sure that you're going to absolutely love this conversation. Hello, Rongan. Thank you for joining me. Gemma, I'm super excited to come on your show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Honestly, I really admire your work so much. And I feel as though whenever I talk to you, I learn something new. And I love that your books are getting out there to so many people. And I would love to share with my audience now a little bit more about you as a person, because I think that knowing more about what motivates people often really helps people to understand why uh, the things they do are so important to them. So would you be able to share with everybody what made you first start taking an interest in um, holistic approaches to health and take this journey that you're currently on? Yeah, I mean, there's many ways to answer that, Gemma. I trust myself in the moment more to see what comes up when someone says something or asks a question. So as you ask that, the first thing that came up for me was my upbringing. You know, my, my parents are Indian immigrants to the UK. They came in the 1960s and 1970s. And I've only really become aware of this over the past few years as I've gone to look back on my life, that actually the way we're brought up, these ideas of food as medicine were sort of ingrained into me because of my culture. You know, I remember my mum, you know, if ever I'd have a sore throat, she'd make this ginger and honey concoction. Like she'd have this little thing on the stove, she'd cut loads of ginger, she'd put some black pepper in and some a little bit of honey, and she told me to sip that regularly. When I was a kid, you just think, okay, mom's telling me to do that, I'm going to do it. But actually, what's really interesting, as we learn more and more about the power of food, I've got to be honest and think, well, actually, my upbringing, my mum, my Indian culture is probably what actually sowed the seed for this at a very young age. Now, taking it a step forward from that, I, like many kids of Indian immigrants, ended up going to medical school. This is very, very common, as you, you're well aware. For me, what was really interesting, I always felt a disconnect in medicine. I didn't, I didn't know how to put words to it. I didn't quite know what I was feeling. I just knew that my practice as a doctor wasn't fully aligned with who I am as a person. I always felt that there was a lot of symptom suppression. There wasn't much of getting to the root cause of problems. And you know, I'm not denigrating modern medicine at all. I've learned lots of powerful things that have helped me, particularly in acute medicine. But a few things have happened in my life as a doctor, Gemma, which have hugely influenced what I do today. Number one, when my son was six months old, he's now 12. So this is how long ago that was. My wife had breastfed him for the first six months. We had gone on holiday just after Christmas to France. And my, my son ended up having a, a very serious convulsion. We weren't sure that he was going to make it through the night. We ended up in, in a foreign hospital in France. No one knew what was going on. It turned out that he had what we call a hypocalcemic convulsion. Basically, he had very low levels of calcium in his body that later was found out to be secondary, so because of a vitamin D deficiency. Now, modern medicine saved his life, no, no question, right? But actually, modern medicine taught me nothing about the possible implications of him being without vitamin D in his body or very low levels of vitamin D potentially for the first six months of his life, and maybe even in utero while he was in my wife's tummy, basically. And I, on a personal level, I felt a lot of guilt about that, Gemma, because I have had a lot of perfectionist tendencies in my own life. I've always expected perfection and excellence in everything I've done for myself, which has been actually incredibly problematic for me in terms of my inner peace and contentment. But that played out there in that moment, which is I felt as though I'd let my son down, that he nearly died from a preventable vitamin deficiency. And I made myself a vow that day as we, uh, even the word vow, I mean, that shows you just how seriously I took this. I felt I've let him down. 
I'm going to return him to full health as if this had never, ever happened. So that was a big turning point in my life where there was a discontentment anyway already, but that moment changed everything where suddenly I became obsessed. I started to study, what is vitamin D? Why do I not know much more about this? I'd read up about nutrition, the gut microbiome, immunology. I actually did an immunology degree when I was at university, but I never applied it in my medical practice. You know what it's like. You know, We learn all these things and then we learn protocols. And I think, well, hold on a minute. There's a lot of science out there that actually I don't know about, that I want to know about, which will help my son. So now he is a thriving, happy, healthy 12-year-old boy, right? So this is, you know, 11 and a half years later. So he literally turned 12 a couple of weeks ago. And the principles I've learned through returning him to this level of health have helped me and my family in our own lives. I've never felt this good in terms of energy, cognition, all kinds of things, right? And they've helped me with my patients. So I've been applying these principles with my patients for many, many years now. And what I'm able to do now, I help my patients regain uh, a level of health and vitality in a way that I never could do before. And I'm using less pharmaceutical medication than I ever have done before. So there's much more I could say on that. You know, I helped care for my dad who had lupus for 15 years and chronic kidney failure. Once at the end of my day as a GP, I was honestly asking myself, how many people have I helped in that day? And I looked on my list, Gemma, and honestly, hand on heart, thought it was only 20%. The other 80%, I thought, sure, you've done something. But I knew I wasn't helping them get to the root cause. I knew I was often giving them a pill that was just like a sticking plaster. So all these things together have been inputs into my mind and my soul and my brain that have really led to me practice medicine the way that I practice it today. And really what I do today, more than anything, the way I feel I'm making impacts is through the information I spread in my five books, but also through the information I spread on my weekly podcast, which now you know, as the most listened to health podcast in the UK and Europe, we, we communicate with literally millions of people a week. And a wider point for me is I've had to ask myself, what does it mean for me to be a doctor in the 21st century? I believe that 80 to 90% of what we see as medical doctors is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. And therefore, I'm not putting, to be clear, I'm not putting blame on people. I understand life is tough. But from my perspective, I think, well, if I can empower people to believe that actually they can be the architects of their own health and happiness, well, I can kind of do a better job and probably reach more people through the mediums of books and podcasts. Yes. Gosh, Ranga, there's so much that I can reflect on from what you've just said. And there are so many different elements to your answer that I really resonate with. We're both GPs and it's interesting reflecting on the purpose behind the choice of a career and a decision and how these things play out. Because for me, I wanted to be a GP for a very long time, probably <laughs> from about the age of 10 or 11. Because for me, it was it was very much the idea of getting to know people, their families, and, and sort of learning how to best relate to them and help them over the course of a long period of time. I don't know why I felt such a passion for it at such a young age, but I started doing a placement like, you know, in a GP practice when I was just 14 years old. I used to sit in and I used to just sit in on clinic after clinic because I was so passionate about doing it. So for me, it really became the fruition of something that I had dreamed of for so long. And then to be able to do it just felt like this incredible privilege. But at the same time, like you, I had my own reservations about how much I knew. I felt sometimes under-equipped to help people because all of the protocols that I'd learned and all of the medications that I knew about didn't change a lot of what people were really suffering from or going through in their lives. And I loved to hear you reflect on that as well because I've often said this and I don't know if I've said it to you but there's this quote by Archbishop Desmond Tutu which just oh it's like a light switch in my head when I heard him say it he said sooner or later we're going to have to stop pulling people out of the river and instead we're going to have to walk upstream and figure out why it is that they keep falling in and I love that quote because I know that he was talking in a spiritual sense 
but I, be, you know, I believe that quote can be applied to so many different things. And it certainly felt very applicable to me in my practice, which is why I then started to expand the things that I talked about and read about and shared with my patients. And it really did help me to find more meaning in the job that I had. And hearing you talk about your journey, you're so right. The podcast, which I didn't even mention before, which is huge. All the people that you reach on that podcast week after week with all the wisdom of the guests that you share. I mean, it's even hard to quantify how amazing that is. So I want to thank you for that. Reflecting on what this could bring to our listeners, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about that journey of finding meaning in your work and how that might be different from finding happiness because your new book is really all about finding happiness. What is the difference, do you feel, between meaning and happiness? First of all, thank you for sharing that quote. It really connected with me. I love it. It can be applied to spirituality. It can absolutely be applied to medicine. Many people, Gemma, who are listening to this right now will absolutely know that feeling where they were suffering with some symptoms and they went to see a healthcare professional, maybe a doctor, maybe someone else. And they will have felt, yeah, but it's all I've got just this pill to remove it. Why have I got it in the first place? You know, who's going to help me understand what's going on? This is so, so common. And this really drives all my work. And I think your work, Gemma, certainly in the public, from what I see, it's kind of, it's about trying to help people find those root causes, right? So for many years, I've said the root cause for most of the things that afflict us is our collective modern lifestyles, right? So Let's just unpick that and then I'll answer your question because it relates to this. Often when we say lifestyle, people can often feel as though they're being blamed. And certainly I, I absolutely have no intention to do that. I understand that modern life is tough, that many people want to make changes, but they find it too difficult or the world around them or their job is not set up in a way that helps them. But nonetheless, I think it's important to, to showcase to people that actually you may not be aware that a few small changes to these, what I call these four key areas of your lifestyle, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation, can have profound effects on a variety of different conditions, not just things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's the, the obvious stuff where people think about lifestyle. No, even anxiety, depression, migraines, hormonal problems, gut problems, low libido, whatever it might be, our lifestyle, and in particular, I would say our stressed response, the fact that many of us have got chronically activated stressed responses, that is actually impacting so many different symptoms. So when I say lifestyle, for me, it's about saying, hey, you may not be aware of this, but actually, if you can make a few small changes here, you may find that these symptoms start to improve or potentially even get better. So by understanding that, by applying it with my son, by applying it with myself, by applying it with my patients, I got more enjoyment from my job. And I think actually one of the big reasons why there's so much burnout in medical doctors at the moment, and in particular in our profession as GPs, it's not just workload, Gemma. Yes, workload is a problem, but I firmly believe another big problem, which I don't see people talking about, is that actually fundamentally many of us went to medical school because we thought we were going to learn how to heal people and get them better. And then we end up somewhere along the line in a job where we end up ticking boxes, putting read codes on people's files, doing repeat medication prescriptions. You know, we're now at a point, Gemma, where it is considered good medicine. Or, and it's easier to do this to someone comes in with a gut problem. They're on a proton pump inhibitor like, I don't know, Lanzoprazole, very commonly prescribed. And we double it from 15 milligrams to 30 milligrams. We pat ourselves on it. We've done something for that patient. They walk away with their prescription. And before we know it, they're on that repeat prescription for four years, right? Actually, medico-legally, you're okay if you do that, right? It's easy for you to manage your caseload if you do that. The problem is we're kicking the can down the road. We're not helping the individual get to the root cause. And we're ignoring the wealth of evidence that shows that chronic medication use of something called proton pump inhibitors, like I just mentioned, it's causing a huge range of long-term problems. It causes gut problems. It means you won't be able to absorb vitamins and minerals properly. It's going to increase your chance of future infections. And it causes something called dysbiosis when there's an imbalance in your gut microbiome, which can cause all kinds of problems. So medicine has gone off track somewhat. And I think this is why many doctors feel 
burnt out because they feel frustrated that, is this all it is? Am I going to do this for the next 40 years? Just keep handing out pills like this. So that is something, again, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to say publicly six or seven years ago. But yeah, I know you you like my latest book on happiness. One, a big part of that is, is about being authentic and actually trying to remove the difference between who is the wronger inside and who is the wronger that's showing up out there in the world? Because I think many of us have a disconnect there. There's a gap. And in that gap, that's where discontentment lies. That's where we start to plug that gap with all kinds of what I call junk happiness behaviors like, I don't know, sugar, gambling, alcohol, online scrolling for too long, whatever it might be. We're trying to plug that hole inside our hearts. So I feel understanding this has helped me have more meaning and more fulfillment out of my job. And I know because we teach a course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine, which is accredited by the Royal College of GPs, and we've trained maybe 3,000 healthcare professionals now. It's now an online course that people all around the world are doing. And what's really interesting is that the feedback we get is not only do I think 90% of attendees say that has significantly changed how they practice as healthcare professionals, a lot of them say, I'm enjoying my job more now. Right, because they're learning how to be a healer. And Gemma, that word healing, it's interesting. We almost can't say that. It's like, oh, you know, we're modern medics. We don't talk about healing. It's like, well, hold on a minute. Surely that's what we want to be, right? What does healing mean? I looked this up for a talk I gave in London last week. What does healing mean? The process, I think, of becoming whole again. And I thought that's so interesting. Or the process of helping someone fully recover. And I thought, well, if I cut my leg, if I fall over, I want that scar to heal. If I sprain my ankle, I want my ankle to heal. And I almost feel that it's a word that we associate with spirituality now and we don't associate with modern medicine, but I want to be a healer. I'll proudly say, I want to help my patients heal. That's what I want to do. So in a long-winded way, going back to your question, I have more meaning and joy now in my job. But what's the difference between that and happiness? Well, I believe that the happiness that every human being truly wants is what I call in my latest book, core happiness, C-O-R-E. Because I think happiness is a term that you could say happiness to 10 different people, Gemma, or 10 different patients. And I think they would have a different interpretation of what happiness means. Is it when all my problems have gone and I have no more emails and everyone treats me really well? Is it when I'm on a beach in Florida with my partner and my children? Is that happiness? You know, what is it? So for me, that's not happiness. Those things might be pleasurable experiences. They can form part of a happy life, but I don't think they're happiness in and of themselves. For me, happiness has three components, alignment, contentment, and control. Right? This is what I call the three-legged stool of core happiness. This is basically the foundation of my latest book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And I think each of these legs is separate, but they're all essential. If one of those legs starts to weaken and ultimately collapse, your feelings of happiness will also start to collapse. So what do I mean by that? Alignment, right? That's when your inner values and your external actions start to match up more and more. Okay, let's put that another way. It's when the person who you really are inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. Now, for most of us, for much of my life, Gemma, there's been a big gap there, a huge gap. I have got my sense of self-worth for most of my life from external validation. What will people say? What will people think? Now, that is a very lonely place to be. You have a big gap. You have a big problem with alignment. And as I've repaired that gap, and I share in my latest book exactly how I've done that, I am much more aligned. But that's only one leg of the stool, right? There's also the second leg is contentment. What are the things that you can do in your life where you feel content, where you feel a sense of peace? What are those things, right? And then the third leg is control. Now, again, control can be misinterpreted. And I thought long and hard before using this word, I, I couldn't find a better word, right, to illustrate what I wanted, but I do recognize it can be misinterpreted. So this is not about controlling the world or controlling the people around you. That's not possible. In fact, if we're waiting for the world to be a certain way or people around us to act with us in a certain way in order for us to feel happy, we could be waiting a very long time. That was me for much of my life. I thought, oh, if they only did that, I'd feel better. Once you realize actually that, no, when I say control, I'm talking about a sense of control. What can you do on a daily basis, ideally, that gives you a sense of control over your life? Because we know from the research, people who have a sense of control, 
they have higher levels of willpower, higher motivation. They have more academic success. They're happier. They're healthier. So a sense of control is really important. Now, meaning and happiness, what's the difference? Right. A lot of people, Gemma, will have meaning, right? I imagine you have a job that gives you a great sense of meaning, right? You, you're obviously a people person. You, I imagine I would feel very lucky if you were my doctor because I think you would listen to me, you'd care for me, you'd hear my point of view and you'd be very respectful. And I'm sure your patients feel that way, right? I can feel that energy from you. But it's possible to have a job that gives you that deep sense of meaning and purpose and still overwork, right? And still not spend time with your partner or kids, still not have time to pursue your passion. So if we go back to the core happiness stool, you have meaning, right? So that would come under the alignment part of the stool because ultimately what is meaning? Really a big part of meaning is when you're doing something that actually really reflects who you are, right? That ultimately is a way to look at meaning, but it's just one leg. I know that I love my job now, but have I worked too hard over the past few years? Have I not spent enough time with my kids sometimes or my wife because I'm so occupied with my work that gives me great meaning. Yeah. And this is not about beating myself up. This is about recognizing you can have meaning, but it doesn't mean you're still nailing it with core happiness. So that's how I look at it. And I think that's really helpful for people because look, let's look at it another way, Gemma, very quickly. And I, I, I'm not saying this to trigger anyone here, but I really want to get this point across because I think these days it's become unfashionable to talk about happiness. And everyone says it's, oh, it's meaning. It's not happiness. Actually, I disagree. I think meaning is an essential part of a happy life, but I don't think it's happiness in and of itself. So let's say you were a soldier in World War II fighting against the Nazis, right? And again, I say this with compassion and sensitivity. One might argue that you were living a meaningful life, doing something important for the world, conquer evil or for good to prevail right? It doesn't mean you were happy. You might have not enjoyed that, but you thought it was important. And so I think it's a complex mix that all of us need to figure out in our our own lives. But I genuinely designed this core happiness concept so that it was very practical, so people can very simply and, and quickly understand, oh, this is why when I do that, it makes me happier. This is why when I do those behaviors, oh, actually, I don't feel so good. Even if in the moment, like for example, Gemma, it could be that someone listening to this has done something dishonest before at work. Maybe they've undervalued the input of a team member and kind of over-eggs what they've done and they've ended up getting a promotion. Now, here's the thing that I've learned about core happiness and what I've learned about life is you can do things, but you can't hide from yourself. Right. When you're lying in bed at night, you've got to live with yourself forever. You've got to live with yourself. Right. So (laughs) you may think in the moment you've done something. Yeah, I've got the job. You know, I knew I was a better candidate, whatever it might be. And I had a patient who I'm exactly thinking about as I say this, but you're not aligned. You're not acting as the person who you want to be. So in the short term, sure, you may have a better job and maybe you've got a pay rise. But in the long term, that will eat away at you like acid because it's not who you are. So quite a lot there, Gemma. I hope I answered your question. I was trying to put it in perspective. You did. And I hope that's helpful. It was really helpful. And I love the way you expanded on it so well, because you have this knack of making things so simple. And the stool of happiness, I like that. So you've got a three-legged stool. One leg is alignment. One leg is contentment. One leg is control, or at least a sense of control over your own emotional world is what I'm hearing from what you said. Yeah, you're right. And that sense of control, if I could go back and rewrite it, which I can't, well, I could do for revisions, I guess, I'd probably emphasize a bit more that sense of control because I think that's really important when we're using, for example, I have a morning routine, Gemma, and why that's so important to me is it means no matter what's going on in the world, whether it be the news, which is not exactly full of positivity at the moment, whether it's my email inbox, whether it's my workload, whether it's stuff going on with my wife or my kids, I know those 20, 30 minutes each morning that I prioritize because I know it's important for me, that gives me a sense of control that grounds me and insulates me from everything else that's going on in the world. So whatever's going on, I'm much better able to face it when I've done something that gives me that sense of control. Yes. I like the way you've contextualized that because in my mind, I feel that it's in acceptance of our lack of control that we can gain happiness. 
I, you, you've nailed it. And this is this is my conflict with the word control. You can see I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's, <laughs> it took yeah. me about six months to come up with this three-legged stool, right? And I know it might seem ridiculous that, but I do take it very seriously. How can you simplify complex messaging? My goal when writing this book was, I knew there was a strong link between happiness and health. I strongly felt that this was not spoken about enough. So I wanted to put it on the map for people, but I thought it's got to be practical and it's got to be simple. I think when I look at other models, the best models have a beautiful simplicity about them, but it's very hard to get to that simplicity. I had all kinds of things I was, but I was like, no, does that hold true? No, it doesn't hold true in every situation. The models doesn't quite work. And I did um and ah over the word control. I tested it with people, with patients, with friends, and I couldn't think of a better one. You know, agency potentially is a word that could also fit there instead of control. You know, do you feel you've got agency over elements of your life? Again, for me, the word agency, I don't think everyone understands. No, it is a completely understandable thing to, to mull over because I'm with you. I, I see in my practice that my patients who are the least happy are the ones that feel they have the least control over the events of their lives. And that is the crux of a lot of their problems. But I think for the average person reading a book like this, if you sort of substituted the word control for acceptance, it would make them feel as though, you know, that they had to accept bad things happen. If you substituted it for the word surrender, then it would make them feel as though they had to just bend over and take whatever it was. So it's actually really hard to find that right word. It is. And when you communicate with the public, as you do, Gemma, and as I do, you have to, or certainly my experience has been, you've got to put your ego to the side and go, wrong. this is not about showing off about how much you know. If this is truly about helping people, well, you've got to think, is this understandable for the person reading this? Is it going to help them improve their lives? Because I'm very accepting, like of everything now, in a way that I wasn't. I used to try and control everything early on. I used to try and control how people would react. If I do this, this will happen. That led to a lot of discontentment. So this is not about controlling the external world. It's not about controlling the uncontrollables. Actually, it is about accepting those things. But what I'm saying is if you can do a few things that give you a sense of control that you are in control over, like I'm in control of whether I choose to wake up at a certain time and do my morning routine. That's down to me. Yes, I have to sacrifice. I don't really watch telly. I don't stay up late. I go to bed early so I can do that because I've experimented over the years, Gemma, that when I do that, I'm a better human being in every component of my life. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better doctor. So my whole approach also is about helping people personalize things for their life. Just because I have a morning routine that lasts now 30 to 40 minutes, I'm not saying you have to do that or someone else has to do it. I'm saying that gives me perspective on my life. That helps to ground me. That works in the context of my marriage and my family life. For you or for a listener, it may be something different, but the principle still applies. What is it that you're doing on a daily basis that's going to help you have a sense of control over your life. Because I think when you create that sense of control over the things that you can control, it actually helps you deal and accept those uncontrollables. And that's going to look quite different for each person. Yeah, um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your morning routine if you are feeling free to share what, what you usually do to help you feel more grounded and have a sense of control. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so I wrote about this in my second book, The Stress Solution. I also touch on it in my latest book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. I explain why I think it's so important. And when I try and teach people about this or share with the public or with patients, I always talk about a framework that I call the three M's because I think it's a very useful way to look at how might you design a morning routine or a routine at any part of the day, actually, that ticks multiple boxes. And the three M's are mindfulness, movement, and mindset. Just to be clear, mine currently takes 30 to 40 minutes, but it never used to. I have patients who will do the three M's in five minutes. When some people are busy, they say they don't have time, and I've convinced them to give it a go for just five minutes, and it's had a profound impact in their life. You know, the question was, what do I do now? So I'll share what I do. I get up each morning roughly at five o'clock. Now, to be very clear, my wife would not dream of a morning routine. She loves to stay in bed until the final 
possible moment. And in many ways, that works beautifully well because actually, one morning when she got up early and she came, I was like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, for me, <laughs> it's my, my kind time. of. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's kind of so it may be the reason I do that is because she likes to get up later. Who knows why I've developed this? But I'll get up around five, usually without, well, always without an alarm. It's like clockwork when I wake up. And I'll come downstairs into the living room. And I will do the first M is mindfulness. So what does that look like? At the moment, and I've experimented over the years, I've recently been on a breathwork course by this chap called Irwin LaCour, who created this whole thing called MoveNet, natural movements. Frankly, it's one of the best courses I've ever done. It's absolutely phenomenal. And so I practice a certain kind of breath hold meditation. It's very quiet. It's very soft. And I do that for about 10 minutes first thing in the morning. It's quite complex, but I think anything simple for people like the Calm app or the Headspace app or just some deep breathing for two minutes, whatever it might be, some form of mindfulness practice. So that's what I do. Then I come into my kitchen and I like to drink coffee. So uh, you may have heard me say this before, Gemma, but I'm very particular with what I do. I weigh out my coffee, I put it in the French press and I put a timer on for five minutes. In those five minutes, whilst my coffee is brewing, I do the second M, which is movement. I literally have a strength workout in my kitchen, in my pajamas, right? And this is really important because one of the key things for people when they're trying to turn a new behavior into a long-term habit, rule number one is you've got to make it easy. If you don't make it easy on the days where your motivation is low, you simply will not do it. So Mm. my strategy is keep it easy. So the fact that I do it in my pajamas even that's important. I don't even have to get changed. It's and brilliant. <laughs> the the thing that I'm thinking about that is, oh, I have to wear a bra. <laughs> so I put a bra on. It's funny because we had a guest, uh, Madeline Shaw, on the podcast, and she said the way that she makes it easy is she'll actually wear her workout clothes to bed. Yeah. So all she has to do is roll out and she's wearing them. <laughs> yeah. And the, the point is these principles work. You just need to do them. What resonates with you? So it used to be just body weight. There's a video on YouTube of my five-minute kitchen workout. People want to see it. But now I've got a kettlebell there in the kitchen. I've got dumbbells. And I change it up. Some days I'll just pick it up and I'll you know, do a few kettlebell swings. Other days I'll do some presses, whatever, just something. I don't put too much pressure on myself. And then I get the beautiful reward of a nice hot cup of organic coffee that I've made just the way I like it. And then I move on to the third M, which is mindset. So this is simply about doing something that puts me in the right state of mind or helps to put me in a positive frame of mind for the day ahead. Now, I used to do affirmations. I don't at the moment. I currently, I've got four or five books kicking around in my kitchen or living room. You know, for my podcast, I probably read two books a week, right? Just to prepare for my guests. So I'm always reading. I've always got books lying around. And I'll pick up one that's uplifting and I'll just for five minutes or sometimes 20 minutes if I've got the luxury of that time, whilst I'm drinking my coffee, I will read a few pages of a book that uplifts me, that makes me think about my life differently. Uh, And really I do, I would say at this stage of my life, I'm 44 now, Gemma, I'm pretty spiritual these days. Like I really feel a connection to something much greater than myself. And what I've noticed even recently, Gemma, because I've just coming off the back of launching this book into the world. So I've been on the road a lot. I've just done a national tour. I've been away from my house quite a lot. And that part of my morning routine must possibly be neglected, right? Where I've rushed through that mindset piece or I'll have done other things whilst I'm drinking my coffee rather than reading that. And I realize, actually, I start to get a bit more reactive. And and, and I've realized, and again, I don't beat myself up about that. It's a nice reminder, oh, no wrong. And you're a much better human when you read these books in the morning that give you a much bigger picture of the world that makes you reflect. So literally five days ago, I said to my wife, I said, hey, babe, you know what? I think I need to go back to this because actually when I prioritize this, I'm much less reactive. So that's kind of what it looks like for me at the moment. Mm. I will also add in, I'm a quite, quite a hippie these days, Gemma. So I'll also go barefoot into the garden. First thing, you know, I'll get it, I'll do my breath work, but maybe I'll just, before I make my coffee, I'll probably just go barefoot on the grass. I'm lucky to have a nice garden. I look towards the sun. Now again, spinning back to what we said at the start, right? I grew up with an Indian family. My mum did yoga. What do they do in the sun salutation sequence? They face east. Mm. It's part of what they do. And it's so interesting now, you know, I've had Andrew Huberman on my podcast. I've had other circadian rhythm experts on my podcast who talk about the importance of looking not at the sun, but towards that direction in the morning to help you set your circadian rhythm. So what I find 
so fascinating, Gemma, is all the science now that we see in wellness, so much of it supports what some of these ancient practices, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine, have literally been saying for thousands of years. And I think there's a real humility there. We think as modern humans, we kind of think, oh, you know, we know stuff that people haven't known before. We've got all this science and technology. And I think, well, wait a minute, maybe we're not quite as advanced as we think. Or maybe (laughs) we need to remind ourselves that human beings have known a lot for a long period of time. So yeah, I hopefully I've answered your question about a morning routine, but I'll also add in that barefootness on the grass and looking east each morning, which is crazy. Because if as a kid, you asked me, you know, why does your mum look east each morning? I would have probably said, oh, I don't know why really, you know, it's just some things she does. And now I'm like, oh my God, mum, you were, you were onto something. <laughs> I, I can really relate to that. You're absolutely right. I love the melding of ancient wisdom and modern science that we're starting to see in its infancy. And you're perfectly safe with me to discuss spirituality and alternative ways of looking at the world. I really do feel as though we missed the trick when it came to evidence-based medicine. And we, you know, we're always learning. I think to keep that humility in science is really important. And I haven't really shared this much before, but I'm beginning to share more. I actually practice Jikadin Reiki, which is an energetic medicine technique. And I feel strongly that it works well. And, you know, I won't go into my explanations about why I think it works well, but suffice to say, there's a lot that we don't yet understand. And I love hearing about your journey and your mum's use of ancient wisdom and how you have only just recently began to, you know, really see the benefits of that yourself. So I, yeah, I think it's beautiful. So you talked about taking a sort of a bigger picture because in your morning routine, you're able to take a step back. You're able to be a better person because you're you're sort of taking a, a different approach to looking at the problems you're facing in that day. In your book, I read a section about taking a step back even further, writing your happy ending. I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on that. So one of the biggest problems I have seen with my patients, with myself, and with wider society, particularly these days, is that we confuse happiness with success. We often think they're the same things. When I get a better job, when I get that promotion, when I get that pay raise, when I can stay in a nicer hotel on holiday, when I can buy that car, I will feel happier. It's a myth. And we see this being played out as a myth over and over again, because we see time and time again, people who achieve these things, yet once they've got them, they realize, oh, I still have that feeling of discontentment. I thought that would do it for me, but I realize actually it doesn't. I'm still just as unhappy as I was. And although I've never been really driven by material things, so I still drive a I think my, my Ford is now 10 and a half years old. It's got a brown bit of tape on the wing mirror from people saying, you're not going to get it fixed. I'm like, well, why would I spend 400 quid getting that fixed? I mean, it's fine. It works. Like, I'm <laughs> just like not me. a car person. And um, like my mates have said to me, Gemma, come on, Rongan, you're pretty famous. Huh? You're not going to sort your car out. I'm like, I love my car. I love my Ford. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, so for me, it's just not a thing for me. And on cars, I mean, this is quite interesting in terms of what we're saying. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting nice possessions or expensive material possessions. The problem becomes when you attach your identity to that. And where I live, I live in a village in Cheshire. And my perception is that there are a lot of people who are driving around in fancy cars. And I, I don't, I generally, I'm not saying this with judgment. I, I, I've got a lot of friends like this who will honestly admit to me that this is the situation. They drive a certain car because they think it says something about who they are. Oh, I drive a BMW. So that says something. And it's a very fragile place to be because when you identify your self-worth with the car that you drive, now you've got a problem because if you lose your job and you can't afford it anymore, you've got a problem. If you are in, let's say, a long-term relationship or a marriage and you get divorced and you can no longer afford it and you have to sell the car and go to something like a Ford like I drive, what does that do to your sense of self-worth? And we see this happening over and over again. So just as a side note there, I'm not saying don't go for these things. I'm just saying be very clear. And, and all the principles in my book are about helping people be very intentional about their decisions and understanding why they want certain things. So the exercise you're referring to is in chapter one of the book where I say, well, try this exercise and it will help you understand the difference between happiness and success, right? So part one of that exercise 
And if you're up for it, we can try it on you now, Gemma, perhaps. I was going um, to try and turn it on you, Rongan. <laughs> okay, well, I don't mind answering as well. Uh, this is what happens when a podcast host speaks to another podcast host. Um, so the first part is this. Write down three things that if you did this week, and I guess week after week, if you could do them regularly, would give you a strong sense of happiness and well-being. So just three things, Gemma, top of your head, are the three things you could do this week that would make you happy? What are they? Hug and kiss my sons, help somebody feel better at work and do my morning Reiki practice. Okay, great. Love those answers. Now, second part of the exercise is what I call write your own happy ending. Now, Gemma, imagine you're on your deathbed and imagine you're looking back at your entire life. What are the three things that you will want to have done as you Mm. reflect back? I want to know that I'd loved enough. And that's the only thing I can think of because that's what it's all about, honestly. Well, even that is so powerful. And it doesn't surprise me, Gemma, because you're someone who I think is very connected to what's important in life. I feel you've done a lot of work on yourself to understand yourself better. And what was so powerful about this is that it's already aligned because the first thing you said in terms of a weekly happiness habit is about your family and your kids, right? And that connection. And at the end, you know, the first thing you said is, have I loved enough? And many people, Gemma, when they do this exercise, will say things like, on my deathbed, I will want to have spent time with my friends and family. I will want to have, you know, engaged in my passions or whatever. And then they look at their week to week life and go, oh, yeah, I say that, but actually I'm so busy. I don't have any time to see my family or engage in my passions or hug my kids because I'm just pushing at work. I'm chasing success at the expense of happiness. And going back to the meaning the happiness question you posed earlier on in this conversation, Gemma, even then you can have a job that you love that's helping people in the world. I know what that's like, but you can still overwork and neglect your relationships. That's why I'm so passionate about this three-legged stool being a complete model that I think works for everyone in every situation. And so you are quite aligned. Now, if I just uh, further ask you a question, do you feel that you always manage to do that? Or are some weeks, even though you know the right things, do you find you get tied up? You know, you, you run a busy practice, you know, you help spread information on Instagram and on other platforms, you do this podcast. Do you sometimes feel you neglect that part of your life, maybe unintentionally, or do you think you're quite good at prioritizing it? I would definitely say that some weeks I am out of balance and I will feel as though I don't have enough time. And this is something that I love hearing you talk about in the book is that time aspect because, yeah, the feeling of not having enough time in and of itself produces a stress response, doesn't it? It it really does. And first thing to say there is why I've created a lot of these simple exercises and there's a ton of them in the book and they're all free. Every single thing in the new book is completely free of charge to do. It's something I'm very passionate about as much as possible to make things simple free and accessible to as many people as possible. These are not one hits where you just do that exercise once. And I really, on that, I would encourage people to pause this or straight after this, do that exercise. Mm. A lot of people, Gemma, they hear this stuff. I'll tell you what I learned on my recent tour, Gemma. I did a a seven-day national tour to promote the book. And as part of the, the, the talk, I would often talk about values. And I say, guys, how many of you have heard either on my podcast or other people's podcasts You've heard about the importance of values and loads of people put their hand up. Then I said, okay, how many of you have ever taken the time to stop and write down what your values are? I tell you, it was about 20% of people only. So many people (laughs) put their hand down. And I think this is another big problem we have at the moment. We hear these inspirational conversations on podcasts or we see these inspirational memes on Instagram or wherever. And we think we've done something. We haven't done anything, right? We've heard it. But if that inspiration doesn't take that next step and become action, Sure, it's nice to reflect. It's nice to think deeply, but you're only halfway there. And that's why I encourage everyone, do this exercise. You don't have to get it perfect. I didn't get it perfect the first time I did it. You iterate. And what you said, some weeks, you're slightly off balance. So am I. This exercise is not to be used as a stick to beat yourself up with. It's to be used as a way of to keep reorientating your life, going, oh yeah, I'm I'm slightly going off track there. So currently, Gemma, I know on my deathbeds, at the moment, my answers to those things are, number one, I hope I've truly nourished the relationships with my friends and family. Number two, I hope I've made a meaningful difference in the lives and the well-being of other people. And three is, I hope I've had time to engage in my own passions. 
And so on a weekly basis, what that looks like for me, and I've been very, very specific. In fact, it's written down on my fridge right now. Each week, for me, it's about five undistracted meals with my wife and kids. So five meals where I'm, you know, we never have phones around the dinner table anyway, but I'm not thinking about work. I'm not distracted. I'm truly present. Do I always manage it? No, but that's the goal. Because I know if I do those five meals each week, at the end of my life, I'll have the happy ending that I've just said I wanted. Number two, if I record an episode of my podcast each week, which I do, I know at the end of my life, actually, I will have contributed to improving the lives of other people. So I'm like, okay, cool. The podcast keeps me in check on that because I keep releasing. And thirdly, if I have had time each week to go for a walk or a run or write a song on my guitar or play snooker or whatever it might be that I know, oh yeah, at the end of my life, I will also tick that box that I've had time to pursue my passion. So it's a very simple exercise. It's very deceptively simple. It's actually very, very powerful if you do it, particularly if you do it regularly, but do not use it as a stick to beat yourself up with. Chapter three in the book is called Treat Yourself With Respect. It's all about self-compassion. It's all about being kind to yourself. It's something I struggled with my entire life. But I got to say, Gemma, I really feel in a good place these days. In fact, I can honestly hand on heart say I have never, ever felt this happy and this content. And how I got there literally is what this book is all about. I, I literally share step by step what I've been through, what the science says. So yeah, just a few things there to, to comment on. Yeah, I can see that when I read the book. You have a real skill for sharing not only the things that will personally resonate with people um, and help them to see how it can apply to their lives. But the simplicity of it, the ease of it, the way that anybody can read it, that's actually really hard to do. So everybody has to go out and grab that as soon as possible. Now, I wanted to talk to you or at least hear what your thoughts are around, you know, you talked about happiness and how it's important and the ways in which we can try to distinguish between junk happiness and real happiness. That's going to look different for everybody, I I would say, based on the meaning that they attribute to that action. So, for example, if one person's happiness is sitting down to watch Netflix and another person's happiness is also to sit down and watch Netflix, the intention with which they do that or the things that they watch on Netflix could be very different. If you're going to have a glass of wine with some friends out and about, you haven't seen them for a long time, that's going to look quite different from drinking half a bottle of wine by yourself at home. Have you found a way, I think, I mean, I remember you sort of saying in the book about how you can actually do the same thing, but have different sort of motivations behind it. And how, how can you tell if you're pursuing junk happiness or if you're pursuing a, a genuine happiness? Yeah, I mean, some of those examples are, are examples I, I, I've used in the book to try and demonstrate this for people. I think that wine example is a beautiful example. You know, it's still wine, it's still alcohol, right? But the intention behind it can be very different. So if you are someone who enjoys a glass of red wine, let's say, for example, and when you get together with your friends, you have that as a way to help facilitate that connection. I'm not turning to the morals of this or the health implications of this. I'm just saying, if you like to do that, that's very different from you drinking half a bottle of wine at night by yourself because you feel lonely, right? It's the same drug, but the impact is going to be very different depending on the intention with which you're using it. Mm. And the whole approach really, for me, is about people to just be more conscious and aware of the decisions they're making and where they're coming from. Again, social media, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with social media. It's the way in which we use it. If you feel alone and you're struggling and you have a really tight community online who you connect with, you know what? You may get lots of benefits. You may get community benefits. Sure, I would always try and encourage you to get real life offline connections as well. But I understand for some people, uh, particularly in some of these lockdowns that we had over the last couple of years, they were an incredible source of connection for people. But it's about asking yourself honestly, you know, why am I engaging this behavior? What is it doing for me? Because a lot of people will use Instagram or TikTok as a way of trying to fill the hole they have in their heart, they feel lonely. Maybe they've got a relationship problem. Maybe they don't like their job. Maybe they feel isolated. They're trying to use that as a substitute and they think that's making them happier. Whereas I honestly think for most of us, it really isn't. There's something in the book that I call the once brain that's a part of the brain in the midbrain that's been there for 
hundreds of thousands of years that basically is concerned with survival. It's concerned with getting resources, achieving more, acquiring more, you know, almost competing, right? At a time when maybe resources were scarce. And actually that part of the brain is still there, but it's just not helping us in the modern world where for most of us, we're not competing over resources anymore. And we know that this stuff isn't not making people happier because actually scientists have done research on this and they have phoned people up regularly after things like buying something new, spending time on social media, uh, having a chocolate bar, these kind of what I call junk happiness habits. And they found that consistently these behaviors make people feel more depressed, less confident, less motivated. Now, I'm not saying junk happiness habits are always bad or wrong. In fact, I don't like to use the words good or bad really much these days in general. I'm not saying they're always unhelpful. It depends how often you're using it or if you're making the mistake that those things are truly making you happy. That's when it starts to become problematic. And I think one way people can reflect on this is to look back and go, how did I feel afterwards? Does that memory of that night out with my friends where I had a glass of wine fill me up with joy or does it fill me? Oh, I, I drank a little bit too much. I behaved a bit erratically at the end. I said something I regretted. You know, how does it make you feel? And it's about honesty. It's not about beating yourself. It's about honesty because if you are aware, the next time you may choose to make a different decision. Gemma, I don't drink anymore, right? I don't drink alcohol anymore. I have no moral problem with it, but I drank a lot in my 20s and early 30s. You know, I didn't drink before I went to university, but you know, freshest week, suddenly to fit in with everyone, you start drinking obscene amounts. And, you know, medics are well known for their drinking culture. And certainly in the last five or six years, I've realized that actually I prefer how I feel when I don't drink. It's taken me a while to process that, but I don't think I've had a drink of alcohol now in maybe 18 months. Alcohol is a great example where people really struggle. They have never questioned their own relationship with it. And again, I would just say for me, it's not about judgment. I recognize that many people are incredibly stressed. I think bringing up a family these days is about probably about as hard as it's ever been. You know, people have moved away from family, from friends, from support networks. They've often moved away for work. And then for a single parent bringing up kids, I don't know how I cannot imagine the stresses. But but for me, the point of us having this conversation, a lot of people think it's just the way it is, right? Oh, I need, I need alcohol. It's just what I do. And it's like, hold on a minute. You may do, but let's just at least just back up a minute and go, oh, right. I'm using alcohol to help me manage my stress or my mm-hmm. loneliness or my frustration or whatever it might be, fill in the gap because it's a great thing to numb the discomfort that we're feeling. And then the question becomes, well, can I address that initial thing that I'm trying to symptom suppress with alcohol? Potentially yes, potentially no. If not, is alcohol the best uh, symptom suppression tool that I have? Or is there something else I could use instead? So if you feel lonely and isolated or you don't have enough time to yourself, right? Well, yeah, alcohol will help numb that a little bit, but maybe running a bath would also do that. Giving yourself 20, 30 minutes, you know, in a, in a nice warm bath or phoning one of your best mates up or phoning your mum up for a natter on the phone. Maybe you can deal with the loneliness in that way rather than the wine glass. But again, it's not about judgment. I'm not telling people what they should or shouldn't be doing. I'm just offering possibilities that people can just consider and potentially make different decisions if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really important. And I was also reflecting on what you said. You talked about how other people perceive your decisions uh, and and how it it might make people feel uncomfortable. I think, you know, a lot of people that have decided to not drink have felt this social pressure. And I related that as well to my food choices, interestingly, because for me, my decision to eat a plant-based diet to sort of decide, okay, I'm now going to exclude animal products from my plate. It led to feelings in other people which is something that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Or people start to apologise, which I find really interesting. They'll say, oh, I'm so sorry if I'm, you know, I'm eating X, Y, and Z in front of you. One of the first things that I remember when I started to eat more plant-based was this fear of judgment because I worried that I would become socially unacceptable to other people. And that was the main reason that actually stopped me from making that choice much earlier than I did, was this fear of being unable to relate to the people that I love the most and making them feel awkward or uncomfortable. Yeah, that's so interesting because even that phrase you just said at the end there, making them feel awkward or uncomfortable. Because if, we, if we're if we really honest, like brutally honest about this, 
And this has been a huge learning in my own life. And this learning has, has had a huge impact on my own health and happiness. You can't make someone feel anything, actually. You really mm-hmm. can't. Ultimately, when we realize, and I appreciate this, not everyone's ready to hear this, not everyone wants to hear this, but I can only speak the truth as I see it. We are fully responsible for our emotions. We generate them inside us. No one does that for us. We do not have to choose the response that we do. Now, it can be hard. Many of us are triggered by things that happen in our childhood that we yet haven't developed the skill of realizing that we do have a choice, but you can develop that skill. And it doesn't matter what anyone says to you or does to you, there is a possibility once you open yourself up to that, that actually you can train yourself to go, no, I'm not going to choose to be offended here. Like even that thing about taking offense, I've realized that a key skill in life is to don't get offended. Just don't get offended. Train yourself to go, why am I feeling offended? Why am I giving myself that sort of self-importance? Oh yeah, I'm offended by what they've said. No, if you don't have an attachment to being right or wrong, you're not going to get offended. It's like, okay, well, yeah, they've got their view. I've got my view. It's just a different view. And so I don't think you can make anyone feel that. I also think this thing about judgment is really interesting. And I write a little bit about this, I think, in in chapter eight, which is about massless conversations and authenticity. What I've come to realize is that judgment actually comes from a feeling of inadequacy. So we like to judge others so that we can, in some way, push them down a little bit to elevate ourselves in comparison. And what I've learned is as I have trained myself to judge people less, I also judge myself less, right? It's a mirror. So I'd like to think I'm a pretty non-judgmental person these days. And if I do fall into that trap, I now have the self-awareness to go, ah, why are you judging? What's going on? Why is this been generating inside you. So, I mean, we could do a whole hour on this piece, Gemma, but <laughs> yes. um, just a few thoughts there, just to touch on that, uh, which I hope are helpful for people. It's really helpful, Rangan, and I agree totally. I feel as though I can also apply that principle to all sorts of things. Even you know, when we, it comes to our personal relationships, when you have this feeling arise inside you, whether it's anger, frustration, judgment, you know, where does that really come from? Uh, and quite often it comes from something within ourselves that we are really struggling with or that we have attributed so much more meaning to than we yeah. than somebody else may have done and it's often that difference between expectations and appreciation so you judge something you expect something and more often than not that leads to if not misery then certainly discontentment ultimately for sure and look my favorite tool and chapter in the book is chapter five, which is called Seek Out Friction, which is basically you can actually reframe any situation in life, any bit of social friction, whether it's the way a colleague treats you or an email you receive from your boss or someone who jumps in front of you in the supermarket queue and you think, oh, they they saw me, then you, you know, whatever disempowering narrative we want to take, we got to realize that that generates emotional stress in our body. And that emotional stress will have to be neutralized in some way or another, usually with junk happiness habits. And I've learned in my own life, but also through the conversations on my podcast, particularly with someone called Dr. Edith Eager, who, when I spoke to her a couple of years ago, she was 93 years old. She was in Auschwitz. She, she got taken to Auschwitz concentration camp when she was 16. But she shared so many incidents in there where she would reframe situations, including straight after her parents got murdered. She was having to dance for the prison guards at 16. And she said, Rongan, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. I never forgot the last thing my mum said to me, which is, Edie, nobody can ever take from you the contents that you put inside your mind. So she said, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was in Budapest Opera House. I had a flowing, beautiful dress on. There was a full house playing. There was an orchestra playing. I thought, wow. You've reframed that in the hell of Auschwitz. And she said many other things. And I highly, highly encourage people, if you're interested in podcasts, please listen to that conversation I had with Edith Eager because it literally changed my life. I was not the same person afterwards as I was beforehand. The last thing she said to me, Gemma, was this. Rongen, I've lived in Auschwitz and I can tell you this. The greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your own mind. And for me, that's everything, Gemma. That is what we all do each day. We create these fictional narratives in our mind. We put ourselves in mental turmoil. That person did that. They should know better. I can't believe they treat me like that. 
You can keep going like that. But what I'm saying is that you're never going to find peace and contentment and core happiness when you adopt that kind of approach. And whenever I struggle to reframe events, and I tell you that chapter is full of practical tips on how you can do this. If ever I struggle, which is pretty rare these days, but I'm human, I still do struggle now and again. I think wrong. And if Edith can reframe those events in Auschwitz, pretty sure you can reframe this in your own Mm. life. And I take that not as a way of beating myself up, but empowering me and going, no, she can do it. I can reframe this because I can tell you this is nowhere near. It's not even a fraction of what it was for her. So hopefully there's some stuff in there for people, but I promise you, this is like a superpower when you can do this. You will walk the same streets, but you will experience those streets differently. You will experience life differently. It will change your happiness. It will change your emotional stress, and it will also change your physical health. Absolutely. Oh, that's so powerful. I'm going to have to draw things to a bit of a close, but what you just said, I think is, it's so important. And that's not to negate any kind of abusive situation. Of course. If you were in an abusive situation, that's very different. But otherwise, there's always a way of helping yourself to understand more about why you're in a situation and what it what it really means to you. There's actually this parable that I remember reading about that an Italian psychiatrist shared. Forgive me if I get it wrong, but it really resonates with the point you made. And there's three different stonemasons in the 14th century in Italy, and they were all building an incredible cathedral. And the first stonemason, all of them very talented, the first stonemason was um, cutting up the stones and the brickwork and laying each stone and saying, I have a miserable life. This is the life I'm going to lead from now until the day I die, doing the same thing every single day. I hate it. And then you have this other stonemason saying, I am skilled at this job and I am creating an incredible income for my family. My children will be able to thrive and my wife and I will be comfortable. I am content. I am happy. And then the third stonemason looked at his skills and said, I have created an opportunity in my life to have a skill that will outlast me and every future generation and will bring absolute glory and fulfillment to thousands of people over thousands of years. I am ecstatic. So powerful. So powerful. Yeah. Oh, well, (laughs) I think that's probably a lovely place to round things up. I always love talking with you. I always love listening to you. And I'm so thankful for the time that we've had together today. This is the wellness edit. So I'll just finish off with one simple question. And again, there's probably a hundred different answers, but whatever means most to you right now, if I ask you, what does wellness mean to you? Wellness to me at this stage of my life actually means one thing. It means presence. It's not about physical health anymore for me, wellness. That, that can be a component. But I always ask myself the question, why? Why do you want physical health? For what? And I realized for me that really what wellness is all about is presence, right? Can I be present in every moment of my life? Because wellness is not having a great diet, sleeping well, moving my body regularly, and then working so hard that when I'm with my children, I'm distracted and thinking about my email inbox or what I've got to do for the work the following day. No, I've done that. I played that game. That ain't wellness. That is a reductionist view of wellness. For me, there's many components of wellness, but all of them for me ultimately come down to, do they help me be more present? Present in my work, present with my children, present with my mum, who I help to look after, present with my family, present with my patients. That to me is what wellness means today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gemma. I think we're going to have to say that's the end. Uh, I really appreciate all of your time and I know that our listeners will get an incredible amount. So thank you. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Everybody, please do make an effort to listen to Rongan's amazing podcast, Feel Better, Live More. Check out the conversation he mentioned with Edith Edgar. And of course, look at his incredible book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. Thank you, Rongan. Thanks, Gemma, for having me. I've really enjoyed our time together. 
So, wow, what a conversation with the amazing, incredible Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. I'm finding it hard to summarise all the things that I learned from that conversation and all of the amazing insights that he was able to share with us and that he was kind enough to go through. A lot of the things he shared were really personal to him, very vulnerable, but I think that really lives in alignment with his idea of showing up as you really are with integrity with compassion and with curiosity and that's certainly what he did today a lot of our conversation was around finding happiness and what it means to be really happy and what we can discover about the things that actually make us happy compared to the things that we think are going to make us happy which fits in really well I feel with the conversation that we had with Johnny Wilkinson also here on the wellness edit about understanding the difference between those junk happiness habits and the things that really help us to feel more in control, uh, more aligned with who we are and more content with the things that we have. So thank you, Rongan, for that. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and I really, really enjoyed it, please do share with your friends. There may be something that Rongan shared that will resonate with someone that you love. And if that's the case, share this conversation with them, send them a WhatsApp message. Think of it as a little act of love towards the people that are important to you. Thank you so much. All views are those of our guests and not Holland and Barrett, unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.